this episode will consist of topics around domestic abuse, domestic violence and sexual violence. If you require any support or help, please get in contact with your local domestic abuse, sexual violence organisation. In the UK, you can call the National Domestic Helpline on 0808 And if you are listening overseas, please contact your national helpline where support, advice and guidance will be available for you. Hello everyone, thank you for joining me. It's been a little while and I've got a few episodes that I'm just in the process of editing and wanting just to shape a little bit before I upload those for you to listen to and I hope that you will enjoy the next couple of episodes because I have a guest who is just amazing. I could speak to him for hours and actually I did speak to him for a very long time which is why it's taken slightly longer than usual to just sift through that and to get those uploaded so they will be dropping very very soon. However, I wanted to drop this one today because I think it's important. I think it's very prevalent for where we are right now. Now, if you're listening in the UK this week, last week, you would be very much aware of some of the stories that have hit our media. One of the stories that hit our media first was woman who was at home in her safe space and in the early hours of the morning her I could only assume would be an ex-partner who has been harassing her and stalking her rocked up to her house armed with weapons that could cause significant harm and the only reason I believe that he wasn't able to cause her significant harm is because the police intervened very, very quickly and they shot him dead because he was armed with a crossbow. A few days later, we hear of a horrendous story where a woman and her two small children were in their car. You would imagine, you would think that your car would be a safe space. You're going from A to B to Z, but She was in her car and she and her children suffered a horrendous attack that will have long-lasting consequences where he thought that it was okay because she no longer wanted to be in a relationship with him to cause her significant harm and throw an alkali substance in her face, which is more than likely that she's going to lose sight in her eye and have post-traumatic stress disorder type symptoms for a long time to come. So the reason why I mention those is because as an advocate of violence against women and girls, I hear more than I would like to hear the statement, why don't they just leave? Well, it's not as simple as that, because if it was as simple as that, I wouldn't be in a job. At the very first sign of abuse or those red flags or that first punch or that first kick was the moment where 
you turn around and go, no. Good. Good that you managed to escape early enough before you got caught in a whirlwind that would be really hard to escape from. But for those people that are in or have been in those relationships where coercive control, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, sexual violence, physical violence are factors within that relationship, then you will know that it's not as simple as just leave. And if it frustrates me, then I can only imagine as a victim, as a survivor of such abuse, the the shame that they feel that they are somehow responsible for what happened. No, you're not. So it's not as simple uh, or as easy as simply walking away from an abusive relationship. Abuse is so complex and it takes so much strength and bravery to leave. That would have taken quite significant planning because a victim of abuse will know or they will be at least very fearful of any ramifications if that escape failed in any way, shape or form. They were found, he rocked up from work early. They are very much aware of the consequences of that decision. Abuse is about power and control. And so when a survivor gets to the point where they want to leave their abusive relationship, they threaten that power and control that that partner has established over the survivor's agency. So this will cause the partner to retaliate in extremely harmful ways. I say it, I've said it on here before, is that when somebody loses control, they will act out of control to regain the control. So as a result, leaving an abusive relationship is often the most dangerous period of time for survivors of abuse. So beyond the physical risks of leaving that abusive situation, there's going to be other reasons why people will stay in their relationship. And no matter the circumstances, survivors deserve to be supported in their decision-making processes and be empowered to reclaim the control over their own lives. And so I wanted to talk about the reasons why it's not as easy as just walking away. The number one reason, the number one will be fear. Somebody is likely to be very afraid of those consequences. If they have experienced any form of physical or sexual violence whilst they've been with that partner, they will 100% know that their partner is capable of causing them significant harm. And probably and likely will know that that harm could lead to death. If there's been any non-fatal strangulation within that relationship, non-fatal strangulation, it takes minutes before somebody will lose consciousness, where they will black out. So if it takes minutes, literally seconds, for that to happen, they know that their partner is capable of killing them. Fear is 
a massive reason why people stay. It could be that actually that that the survivor has normalized the abuse. They may compare it to previous relationships. Well, this relationship is not as bad as the last relationship, so therefore it's okay. It could be that they've grown up in environments where abuse was common, and actually what they've done is they've compared what they've experienced to what they're experiencing now, and maybe there may be some minimization that's going on. They might not even know what a healthy relationship looks like. They might get their blueprint of relationships from their friends or through their own experiences through family or childhood or even the media will portray quite unhealthy relationships as relationships to adhere to and there are a number of films and tv programs that romanticize the abuse of power where they glorify and romanticize those abusive relationships. So it could be <clears throat> that actually they never have been taught what a good, healthy, loving relationship looks like. We take it for granted that we know what it is, but actually do we? Because the numbers of survivors that have experienced domestic abuse are year on year on year on year are increasing and not decreasing. So that in itself should tell us something. Shame, blame and guilt is a common denominator in abusive relationships. It can be really difficult for someone to admit that they are being abused. They may feel that they are responsible for the abuse. They may feel that they've done something to deserve the abuse. They might feel that there's something wrong with them. They might be making assumptions that they're the issue, that they are the problem. It could be that actually this is all that they've known and so that this is all that they're going to get. It could be actually by admitting that they are victims of abuse, that they are seen as weak or vulnerable it's got nothing to do with being weak blame shifting is a common tactic that a perpetrator will use and that can reinforce that feeling that notion of that they are responsible and that it's their it's something that they are doing to their partner that is causing them harm. Intimidation it could by the perpetrator making threats to stay with, within that relationship. It could be threats such as, I'm going to kill you if you leave me. Or it could be, I'm going to kill myself if you ever leave this relationship. It can be verbal, it can be physical, it could be threats to spread rumours or intimate pictures or videos. It could be revenge porn. It could be for those that are in the LGBTQ plus community and they haven't they haven't shared that or disclosed that, that that information gets shared by the perpetrator. So that's taken out of their control in order for the abusive partner to exert that control. It could be there are reasons such as low self-esteem. You know, if you are constantly being fed that you are mad and bad, at some point you are going to believe that you are mad and bad. 
you know, you convince me that the sky is pink, after a while I'm going to believe that the sky is pink. And when I acknowledge that the sky is pink, guess who's the crazy one? Because the sky is not pink, it's blue. You know, so it can be really easy for survivors to believe those sentiments that they are bad and mad and that they, again, are at fault for their partner's abusive behaviours. Right, let me make this really clear. It is the fault of the perpetrator. They are choosing that behaviour. And one of my pet hates at the minute is everybody is a narcissist. And narcissism is being thrown around just like a terminology. And it kind of legitimises abuse. No, not every abuser is a narcissist. And not every narcissist is an abuser. And, And I can do and probably will do an entire podcast on why I believe that to be the case. But shifting and kind of giving a reason for somebody's behaviour takes away the responsibility from the perpetrator. No, this may be really hard to own and hear, but a perpetrator is perpetrating abuse because they can and they want to. And that's got nothing to do with narcissism. Maybe slight, but it is, it's about their will rather than some narcissistic mental health disorder because narcissism is a mental health disorder and true narcissism requires intervention in some form but not every abuser is a narcissist but it's not it could be that actually the survivor has a lack of resources so they might not have the financial dependency. They may be very dependent on their abusive partner. They might not be getting their wages or their benefits paid. It may be that they've been denied opportunities to work or go to college. It may be that they've not been allowed to access language support if English is a language that they need to learn because it's not their first language. It could be that actually they've been completely isolated from their friends or family and so they haven't got a network to turn to when there is crisis. All of those factors can make it seem very impossible for someone to leave their abusive situation. For those that where disability is an issue, it could be that their perpetrator is also their carer. They may feel that their well-being, their health needs are directly tied to that relationship. It could be that the perpetrator has made it a deliberate factor that there is a lack of alternatives of support that can influence someone's decision to stay or to leave that abusive relationship. Immigration, women and children are often used in times of conflict. It could be that somebody has been trafficked over to the youth. It could be that somebody has fled a war-torn country. It could be that they've left a country because women's rights are completely non-existent. And so therefore, they are relying on another person potentially for their immigration status within the UK, at the very least. I don't know about other countries, but they feel that 
they, that if they report that abuse to immigration officers, the home office, the police, social services, whoever it may be, that that's going to affect their stay in the UK. It could be that they don't have English, like I said, as their first language, and so they're not able to communicate the abuse that they are experiencing. It can be absolutely amplified by a very confusing legal system in the UK. There are traditional customs or beliefs that are very patriarchal in nature and that may influence somebody's decision to stay in that abusive relationship. Whether that be held by the survivor themselves, the perpetrator or even the family or community, none of which should determine a decision whether somebody should stay in that abusive relationship. It could be that the survivor has children and they go to school, uprooting somebody from a school or their support network or their friends could have a detrimental effect. How many of us, hands up, minds up, have made decisions based on our children rather than our own needs? And it could be anything. We put our children first. And so there could be this misplaced assumption that actually they we need to stay in these abusive relationships because the children need to be brought up in a 2.4 family. Got like we're in 2024. Families look very, very different to what they look like in the 1930s, 40s and 50s. And so that could be very misplaced about keeping somebody in that family unit where it is very, very harmful. Not only harmful to the survivor, but we know that there is a significant impact on children and they experience harm within those domestic violence relationships. And it could be a very, very warped sense of love. And I say that because you may be listening to me going, well, none of that sounds loving. But it could be that actually using those love bombing techniques that the perpetrator has used within the whole of that relationship, that the that experiencing that abuse can result in feeling genuine care for the partner who is causing them harm (laughs) syndrome trauma bonding survivors will often have very strong intimate feelings for those abusive partners but no matter the reason leaving any relationship can be really difficult and very very dangerous and so please Stop saying, just leave. And you've just listened to this week's episode. I hope that you've enjoyed the conversation this week. Feel free to like, share, subscribe so you don't miss out. And I'll see you next time.